Good morning, Hope Church. My name is Mary Jack, and the reading this morning will be from James 4, verses 13 through 17. James 4, 13 through 17. Now listen, ye who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or to that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and does not do it, it is a sin for them. If you've been with us in the book of James, you have heard us say several times as we approach a text that it's what's called wisdom literature, which basically means it's taking God's spectacles and putting them on our eyes and wanting us to look at our lives, every corner. Look, look at your home, look at your body, look at your work, look at your bank account. Look at your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. Look at your neighbors. Look at your city or your country. Look and see it from God's perspective. And from his perspective, live differently. Well, this text is speaking about our plans. And we live in a Western culture which is very timely and likes to make plans. I remember I was uh, spending time with some, some more European friends, South American friends, and time is a whole different thing. In, in, the, in, the, in the United States, you'll feel this. If, you're gonna, if something's supposed to start at a certain time, you expect it to start at a certain time. If you invite friends, if you say, hey, we're going to have dinner at 6, and they show up at 8, Oh, yeah, you laugh. Why do you laugh? Because that would be a completely offensive. Well, you better not live in a different culture where it's not about a schedule that restricts me, but about relationships with people that define the terms. If I was in a conversation with one of my kids or doing something at my house and it take, took time, in some cultures, me saying, couldn't make it till 8 o'clock, you just need to put up with that even though the soup is probably cold. Maybe the dishes have already been put away. So even just the way we think about time and control is going to be spoken to in these texts. The plans that we make. What are your plans for this month? What are your plans for this year? How, how does a Christian plan and think about the future? That's what this text is going to poke and prod. Again, here, in some ways, all of James is a bit of a push, a bit of a challenge, but it's a loving father speaking to his children, asking them, directing them to see the world as it truly is, and to trust him in living in that world, not just our own. So it's grace, it's merciful. So let's pray, and then we'll... Look at the text that Mary just read for us. Father, open our eyes that we may see the wondrous things in your law. 
And help us to have our hearts softened and our minds opened and our eyes seeing clearly as we let you operate on us week in and week out, and especially on this day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. That opening phrase, again, could sound a bit less intense without tone. I mean, we don't, we don't know how it's being stated. James could be saying, now listen, you who say. Right? I mean, that doesn't have as much force. Today or tomorrow we will go to... The, I mean, that's not, I don't think that's what it's saying at all. In fact, that, that opening phrase, which is hard to translate in English, it, it would probably be translated like this. Are you serious, Christians? Now, if somebody started with that, you'd be like, whoa. Or, give me a break, Christians. Are you joking me, Christians? Now, if I started a statement like that, you know I'm serious. Like, there's something that I'd be seeing in you that's like, are you kidding me? You're going to order that plate at this restaurant? Are you joking me? You'd want a vacation there? I mean, you know what I'm saying? If I started with that little expression... Obviously, there's some kind of a pushback. So the, the, the opening, now listen, you who say, is not quite getting it. It's James saying, do you seriously live like this, Christians? Do you, do you really, even if you don't say these words, do you really go like this? Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city. Spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Do you really speak like that? That's what verse 13 is trying to say. So now he's got your attention a bit. He's pushing on something. The tone assumes a posture toward life that is completely out of whack with Christian thinking. So you and I want to hear that. Like, Lord, help me know if I'm looking at my time and my life and my decisions in a way that's out of whack, because how would I even know? Because I've been catechized by whom? By the people I live around. And what are they doing? They're making plans all the time. How does a Christian make plans? How does a Christian use his or her resources? How does a Christian think of their life? Because probably I've been influenced way more by just the people around me than God's Word. Which is why James says, are you joking me? That's how you make your plans? The concern is that a decision is made frivolously. See that statement? Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city. It's, it's frivolous. It's lacking intentionality. Or it, a decision's being made in a way that seeks self-indulgence. We will spend a year there. Or that it's driven by monetary gain. We will carry on business and make money. You can just hear James saying, that is not what drives a Christian. Mere, frivolous, whatever we feel like now, purely self-indulgent entertainment, or seeking the treasures of this world. Like if that is what's driving us, and again, it's hard to know, but if that is what's driving us, you can hear James not saying, now listen, you who say but saying something like, are you serious? Like, are you joking me? 
Is that really how you think the Christian life is to be lived? And that's the question. Maybe we could think of the list of concerns this way. By me asking questions of us that are forced or pressured from this text. Do we live in a way that takes every day seriously? Meaning, do we have a larger purpose or strategy that drives our lives? doesn't mean we don't stop and smell the roses or enjoy this little cuddle here or this little conversation there, but it means, in general, there's a direction we're going. There's, a, there, there's something we're trying to accomplish. But again, it, please hear that. It'd be accomplished for the greater glory of God and His kingdom. Here's another question. Do we live in a way that is addicted to entertainment? Boy, that's a toughie. That's a toughie. I mean, just, again, Sunday is no longer owned by the church. It's now owned by the NFL. So how much time will we spend today doing NFL in contrast to church? That isn't to put down the NFL, because I'm happy to watch the Bears lose again. No problem. <laughs> Done it three weeks in a row. Let's go straight four. But are we overly addicted to entertainment? How do we even, again, I'm not trying to pit football. I'm just trying to, how do we even know when everything has to be entertaining? Or how about this? Do we live in a way that is driven by prosperity? Which, by the way, I would like to suggest... Now, this, I'm totally copywriting, borrowing this from others, that finances and money is its own form of salvation in this culture. If you want to feel security, you've got to have a certain retirement, you've got to have a certain income, you've got to have, a, I mean, you, we, you, you and I do not realize how much money is its own kind of salvation. It's a security. It doesn't mean we're frivolous with it. Or foolish, it just means we're not worshiping it, which is hard to do. Again, this is wisdom literature speaking. Are you serious, Christian? Have you looked in the mirror? Are you evaluating yourself? Are you, are you actually letting God direct your life and form your heart and move your hands and feet and, 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 and morph your affections so you love the things you're supposed to love and the things that are not to be loved too much, you're totally fine not loving. Now picture the common American life. Picture the common Facebook postings of our friends. The, the next concert or the next movie. The next vacation, the next car, the next iPhone, the new blouse or shoes, the next big game on a Saturday or a Sunday, that new great restaurant, a big promotion, the next important kid event, the next big holiday, all the holidays, the next big thing. Welcome to the American life. And we bounce from one to the other. And James says, are you joking me? 
Verse 14 is where God shines, let's call it a Jesus flashlight, on our life and activities. He basically says this, your plans are in reality total fiction. You can't control squat. There is nothing that you can control. You have no clue whether that heart of yours is simply going to stop in 25 minutes. And you might be on the table, the best surgeons on the planet, and they might not be able to do anything. Where's your control? You can't control whether some serious war inflicts this country or some serious disease or famine or economic crisis. No, you can guess and try to determine when or how or in what way, but what can you control? Nothing. Look at 14. Again, here's James. Again, he's not reading it like this. Why do you not even know? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. You have no clue what's going to happen tomorrow. Even the weather people have proven to us that they have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. And then, I mean, and then it gets worse, stronger. What is your life? You are a mist. Think of it this way. You're a bubble. You ever try to grab a bubble? You ever see kids? How long does a bubble last? Can you put it in your pocket or your purse? Can you carry it around and say, that's my favorite bubble. Bubble. I've had it since I was nine. Don't touch it. It's in the middle of the kitchen table. It's my bubble. You can't do squat with a bubble. The word, the word in the Greek, mist is a good translation. Vapor is probably the closest. But, it, but maybe, I mean, we're, we're thinking, like, it's not like you're seeing a mist, but when you think about a little kid blowing a bubble, how many bubbles do they have to blow? Because they keep doing what? They pop. And the moment you get one, it even just looks like it's about to go. And the moment it, boop, like where was it? It's not like there's a permanent circle. Well, my bubble was right there. For 10 months, it stays floated in the air in my driveway. No, it is gone, and you don't even know it existed. And even if you get a little bit of moisture on your hand, guess what? It dries real quick. God just described your life that way. Now, you might be in here. There are people sitting in this room, this service from next, that have lived over 90 years. That feels like a long time compared to little Selah Noble who's been just past nine days or something like that. But 90 years, God looks at and says, you're a bubble. That's a view of life. What is your life? You are mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Our plans can really only be Good intentions. We, we, we cannot actually plan. In a true, by definition, us planning is a fiction. We can have good intentions. We can have purposeful directions. But we simply cannot control a thing. That's why I, I, I think of this phrase, humble intentionality. A mature Christian 
manages each day and season with humble intentionality. The intentionality gets this sense of, I've got some kind of purpose, some kind of direction that seems fitting with God's will, but I simply must have my hands like this because all of it, including me, is a bubble and they don't last very long. We aim our lives in a good and wise direction and trust the providence of God in every moment. There is the Christian posture. Even to make such plans, we might even want to say, reveals a serious misunderstanding about life itself. Again, that doesn't mean we're not intentional on purpose. It's not like us, I have no idea what I'm going to do today. Mickey said I should make no plans. Sorry, boss. No, that is, that is lacking. It, it gets some level of humility more on the stupidity side, but it lacks the intentionality of what God has prescribed that we should follow through. We just can't put our arms around it because your life is a bubble. You try to squeeze that too hard and it's going to pop. Our lives are transitory. They go by in a flash. They're finite. They're fragile. When we were in St. Andrews, there is a famous theologian lived about 100 years before America was founded named Samuel Rutherford. He's got a 12-volume set that one day I hope to buy. Not yet. He lived from 1600 to 1661, 400 years ago. And he studied in the same old stone rooms that I studied in. And I always thought that was so cool. I remember reading his letters, a, a different set of volume, and thinking of this man hundreds of years before me, a Scottish conservative Christian theologian. And in his, by, his tomb is right there by the water, by the St. Andrew's Cathedral. And even when I, our family was there just a few months ago in June, when my kids were climbing up this cool tower and my wife was sitting on a bench, I by myself walked over and vaguely remembered where Samuel Rutherford was buried. Because when I was a PhD student, I would take my lunch from time to time and sit there and have my lunch right by this famous theologian's tomb. And I went over and found it, and I looked at it. And the last time I was there was almost 20 years ago, and just a small, little, tiny, oldest child. And no other kids. I look back and see my wife with a walker. And I see two further children. And I think, wow, a lot has gone past. And then I look at that tombstone and think, 400 years ago, he walked these streets and studied in this place. What is your life? You are a bubble. You appear for a little while, and then you vanish. Now, I'm going to skip verse 15, because I think verse 15 is the, this is what you should do. Because he basically starts with a shouldn't, 13 and 14, gives more of a shouldn't in 16 and 17, and right in the middle, like a beautiful framed picture, tells you exactly what to do. So I'm going to keep on the shouldn't and jump down to, I'm not skipping 15, don't worry. 16, he continues his rebuke. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. He's not saying you're boasting about your schemes. He's saying your planning is itself boastful. It just assumes you have freedoms and power and control that really don't belong to you. All such boasting 
James says, is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. 16 offers a fitting rebuke when we think and act this way. We are simply being arrogant. Again, for us, in our culture, that's just actually normal. What's your plan? What are you doing tomorrow? What's your, where's your spreadsheet on life? Again, some of, some of that humble intentionality is essential. But when you assume or hold that too closely, you're just boasting. There isn't this posture that verse 15 gives you uh, with open hands. And by the way, the proof of that is when things don't go your way, what do you do? The moment something is denied or taken away, what do you do? You'll know real, real soon if you were holding it tight or it was just like this. We assume along life, we assume control, we assume freedom and independence, and we assume we have rights and freedoms that can be defined and used by us in any way we choose. That's arrogance. And according to wisdom literature, that's the fool. Quite simply, to live that way is sinful. I remember I was, when I was teaching in Biola, my first year as a professor, I've got, I got this expense account for conferences. Well, I, I, mean, I don't know if you, some of you were poor grad students, but we would cram as many guys as we could cram into a hotel room. And I'm, I mean, we're eating granola bars and like free pastries at sessions because we have no money. Right, And I mean, I, I'm, I literally remember going to these conferences, I'm wearing a sport coat and a tie around because I'm looking for jobs, but I'm sleeping on the floor next to some crazy people who are fellow grad students because we have no money. And my first year having a reasonable amount of money, I still slept in a room with five guys and I still ate my Chipotle in Subway because it just didn't feel right to me to all of a sudden to be eating a steak dinner because I had some more money. But I, I do remember going to a gathering with a bunch of these year before me, year young, one year younger grad students, and I'm like, hey, I've got, I've got budget money. So I bought five large pizzas, which actually wasn't that expensive, to feed these guys because I remember exactly what that was like until I got back to Biola and I got a contact by the office like, we need to talk to you about your expenses. Like, no problem. I was like $400 under. Yeah, we know you were. You ate five large pizzas for dinner? Well, not at all. I mean, I ate some of that, but that was for about, however, I forget how many people. Yeah, have you heard of taxation and IRS? Not really. You can't use that money for somebody else. So, so I could have gone to a steak dinner for 60 bucks. And that would have been okay, but if I'm buying for these poor grad students, okay, sorry about that. That didn't happen again. But interestingly, think about that. It's not my money to use as I want. That there are a set of procedures to follow. There's a level of intentionality that should be followed that I can't just use it however I want. Do you and I think about our life that way? Do you think about your money that way? Do you think about your time that way? Do you think about your skills that way? If not, you're simply living like the fool. Not like the Christian. 
That's where verse 17 ends. If anyone knows the good they ought to do, maybe you should have called in sick today because you're hearing this now. If anybody knows the good they're supposed to do and they don't do it, guess what? It's sin for them. If you know that you're supposed to live with humble intentionality, that your life is not your own, get this, your time, your talent, your treasures are not your own. They belong to King Jesus. If you know that and don't act like that, you're sinning. So let's get to verse 15. I mean, he makes it clear. I mean, we all could read it. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this and do that. Notice the word live. He doesn't just say, if it's the Lord's will, we will do this or do that. He says, if it's the Lord's will, we will live. Because you know what? You know you're a bubble. Your life is not your own. So you already hold your life loosely in a way that acknowledges it's not my own. I need to have some humble intentionality with my life, but I ultimately know I cannot set my number of days. And I shouldn't be loosely setting what I do with those days. I think this command in verse 15 is defining what humble intentionality looks like in practice. After we submit our lives to King Jesus, we apply a humble intentionality to every future endeavor and every long-range possibility. We, don't, we do not live like fatalists and deny agency in our decisions and process. It's not, it's not like we're like, I'm I, I not going to make any decisions today. If the phone rings, I'll answer. Otherwise, I'm just going to lay here. Like, that's not it. We're very intentional. We're very purposeful. We just have our hands open. But we no longer deceive ourselves into thinking we are entirely free. My second year going to that conference, I, sp I thought about every penny I spent in a whole new way because I didn't want to get arrested by the IRS. We think about our life we think about our things. We think about our time differently. We cannot control life. We are not immune to the sin distortions in creation. And we cannot live as if we are not under the authority of God. The godless bent of the concerning postures in verse 13 are likely the heart of the issue for James. Again, that's why it can't be started. Maybe I was being a bit theatrical, but it can't be, now listen, you who say. What's that guy's name? Igor or something? Like, it can't be read like that. It's got to be like, are you kidding me? Because that godless bent of living is not how the Christian lives. What verse 15 is teaching us is that Christians simply do not live as if they are not in constant dependence on God. Here we go. This is the tough one. Because you thought it was just all grandiose and beautiful once you gave your life to Christ. Here's the thing. You have to give your life to Christ every day. You might have given your soul to Christ, but you've got to give up your life to Christ every day. Lord, if it's your will. Lord, if it's your will. Lord, if it's your will. You never stop doing that. It might be way smaller chunks. You're not giving your whole sinful condition every day. But you might be giving up your security and finances, which, by the way, is a dominating idol in our world. You might be giving up the security of health. 
which is a dominating idol in our world. You might be giving up security regarding your children and grandchildren, which is a dominant idol in our world. And King Jesus wants to be king of all. Well, by the way, is there a better king? Like, are you a better king? Like, are you a wiser and more benevolent ruler than King Jesus? It's easy to believe that. But it's hard to be open-handed. What's it mean to say, if it is the Lord's will? I, 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 think, it, I think it's three things. It, it's to believe something. To say, it, it is the, if it is the Lord's will, is to believe that God is the true and final architect of all things. It's a firm belief that the one who created all things is also the one who sustains all things. It is believing in living faithfully as you walk in the doctrine of providence, that God is the one who provides providence. Again, that may be the easiest part. It's just cognitive, right? Our growth hours will teach that, a sermon. It's one thing just like, got it, I got that essay question down. That's the easy part. The next is to submit. Here we go. To say, if it is the Lord's will, is also to submit to God's purposes and plans, even when we cannot see them or understand them. You can't see it. And all that's hard for us because we love our control, right? I just got to know. I just got to know. I remember I got yelled at so bad as a sophomore on the football team. I just wanted to know how many sprints we had to run. That's not a bad question. I'm no more coach. Good golly, Clink. When the whistle blows, you run. I just, I kind of wanted to know. I like to know how much more pain. But honestly, that's all of us. We like to know. And God at times says, good golly, Christian. When I blow the whistle, just run. And when I blow it for a final time, just stop. But you don't get to hold the whistle. Finally, the last, it's not just to believe, it's not just to submit, which is that beginning process of humbleness, but it is also to trust. To say, if it is the Lord's will, is to trust that the God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. In these ways, then, the phrase, if it is the Lord's will, is not just a slogan. It's not some kind of sacred statement. Oh, forgot to say it. If it's the Lord's will, no. What are we doing tomorrow? Let's go. It's more than a slogan. It's a philosophy for life. Think of it this way. It's like a practice. I practice daily saying, if it is the Lord's will. It's a posture it's even a prayer. How's it go? You heard of the one, called the, the one called the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You can say it with me. Your kingdom come. Did you hear that? On earth as it is in heaven. And then it talks about give us this day our daily bread. By the way, it's daily bread. Not annual. Not lifetime. It's manna in the wilderness. And every time they tried to take for two days, God would whoop, be maggots the next day. You learn to trust me one waking moment at a time. 
And every little day is like your life. And you lay down at the end of the day and you close your eyes and you trust that when you wake again, it's a new life, a new life of 16 hours. And you live it. Give us this day our daily bread. That's a posture. That's, that's a culture in a person's life. Do you know what I mean by that? It's not a program. Check, did the, uh, if it's your will today, let's move on. No, it's a, it's a culture. It's just the way you engage with things. It's the way you, you deal with the, all the plenty you deal with, and it's the way you deal with suffering. Right? Are families learning to do that? I get broken up every time I think about it. I mean, we've been open about it. We're dealing with that. Hard to hold loosely. It's not just a good job you like or a, a house that you were hoping for. It's, it's so much more to the core of your life and your family. It is hard. But it can't, it can't, it's, it's not just something you can grab because life is what? It's a bubble. And some of these bubbles live 90 years. And some go a little quicker. And it hurts. It's hard to hold loosely. When you think of the impact of your life and your children. Oh, I remember when we were in a mall a while back, my oldest son. I mean, now if that guy ran into my oldest son, that guy would be a goner. But this guy was kind of stumbling, and my son was there, and I was like, quick reaction. I just nailed the guy with my shoulder. I mean, I, mean, I had a two-year-old boy. And if that guy was going to land on my son, it wasn't going to happen. I didn't know the guy, but sorry. And I just, boop, boop, stepped to this guy, went boom, to the ground like that. I'm like, I quickly got him up and said, sorry, but it was either you or my son, and I chose him. And I just remember, I could protect him from that. I could totally protect him from that. I can't protect him from this. I can't protect him from this. So what do I do? Hard, right? Okay, Lord, you are a good, good father. We sing that song. I will trust you. You are merciful. I cannot control when ALS is given to somebody that I love. Who happens to be the mother of my children. I can't control that. But I will say, if it is the Lord's will, help me. Help me. And I am learning true and hard. That is no slogan. That is something that I must daily say. It's yours. Help me. Because I, my fingers are, cl are, are clasping quickly. Help me. Help me. Help me, Lord, if it is the Lord's will. So let me give you some applications. Just a couple thoughts as we close. Here's the first. God's will for your life is not magical, nor to be chased by looking for secret clues and hints. I, I really think when we think about the will of God, we've got to tweak that. This could be a whole topic and message or sermon series on its own. But, but I have those conversations with Christians a lot. How do I know the Lord's will? Well, honestly, you're not going to know exactly. Here, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. God's will can be broken down into the, the, the general category, which is revealed, and the specific category, which is secret. 
So the revealed will, we just know that because God's word tells us what it is. When it says do this or do that, guess what? That's his will. So do it. But which job you should take? Uh, Not going to be in Romans or Ephesians. Which house to buy? What medical treatment to apply, to refrain from? Which investment plan? How many hours to work? You might get some principles or general things that in God's revealed will that circle around it, but in reality, we may never know for sure. So you follow God's revealed will, and then you accept God's secret will. You embrace your Christian liberty within the revealed will of God. If it's not a sin, feel free to do it. That's why I'm standing here now. I felt this pull to the church, but I was in the academy, and a wise older professor said, you're not sinning if you serve as a professor of New Testament. You're not sinning if you serve as a pastor. Embrace your Christian liberty, brother. What are you going to do? I didn't know the secret will, but I embraced my Christian liberty and came to Roscoe, Illinois. Here's the second thing. Planning is good. Here we go. Every type A person, don't, if you're sitting by type A, pull their fingers off their ears, okay? Planning is good, but all plans must be dedicated to God, so you're seeking His will. You're asking, Lord, there's that humble intentionality. All plans must, be, must confess their need of God's favor. You totally know you need the work and the gifts and the reality of God. And finally, all plans must declare their achievements are the gracious gifts of God. By the way, if it wasn't for God sustaining your lungs and heart during whatever great accomplishment you would have done, it wouldn't have happened anyway. Let alone the other things that are totally by His common grace gifts to you daily. Third, Christians, maybe especially in America, need to accept the transitoriness of this life. Again, I I'm not saying that just to be hard on our country or culture, but to be fair, when you're in the wealthiest country in the world, and maybe more than that, a culture that has a a, a diagnosed allergy to death and aging, you might want to hear it. Like that, every time you hear that, people, I mean, Christians be the most free with the reality of death and the reality of aging. I really do think anything else is an arrogance before a holy God. Life is fleeting. Life is impermanent. Our bodies and the bodies of those we love are finite. And to deny that or to minimize that or ignore that is actually pagan. It's not Christian. For those with greater wealth and economic security need to be the most aware This is me trying to contextualize this passage for our culture, right? Those with the greater wealth and economic security need to be the most aware of the tendency. It's not guaranteed. It's a tendency to live with a posture of independence and self-sufficiency. It's just easy to rely on yourself. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Is that in the Bible? The Bible would say, are you kidding me? (laughs) Did you make yourself? Again, note verse 13. 
Number five, for the Christian whose life is bountiful and full of plenty, work hard to submit your time, your talent, and your treasures to the Lord. Again, the tendency would be to live with a sense, a naive, arrogant sense of freedom and independence. The Christian posture is humble intentionality. My time is not my own. I'm a mist. My talent is not my own. It is for Christ and his kingdom. My treasures are not my salvation. They are for God and his glory. Hard to do. And then last, for the Christian whose life is filled with difficulty and suffering, who also has to pray if it is the Lord's will. Submit yourself to the Lord's assignment and endure faithfully as you trust in His mercies. For those of you who are walking this road, I am with you. It's a hard road. But I'm not alone. I know that in this room. And I know that in this church. And we know that in this world. We trust in His mercies. We believe that He is the final architect of all things. We submit to his purposes and plans. We trust him with the end result. We look at our life as a bubble, a mist, a vapor. We have humble intentionality, but our hands are open. And that is a rich, rich life of wisdom that God wants for his children. Which is why he brings it up to us in this text this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are are broken people before you, and we come in humility asking you to help us to have that humble intentionality in our lives. Father, it seems at times insurmountable to get past the things in which we rely, like our gifts and our health or our talent. Or it seems insurmountable for us to get past our losses and our sufferings. Thank you that you have kindly addressed your children in such a way that we can see the posture of the Christian to their life and to their world. And work in us, the people of Hope Church. Help us to say, not just with words, but with a posture to say, if it is the Lord's will. And help us to live that way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.